Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Anticipation, with expectation, and with um, and, and with a heart on fire for you, God. Um, so, Lord, we also give you these offerings, God, because they are um, not our own, God, but they are really all yours. So that we give them willingly and joyfully, um, because we know that you will do great things with it. Um, so, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. morning. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave, and it's my privilege to serve as lead pastor here at Harvest. I'm going to take a second and swallow this cough drop that I didn't quite finish. That was gross. And I, I want to welcome you to the last Sunday of the year. I'm so grateful when significant days like this fall on a Sunday, and we're able as a church family to be together as we mark the passage of time. In some respects, today is just like any other day, and tomorrow will just be another Monday. But it's really important to us as human beings to have these boundaries, these um, places where we mark the end of something and the start of something else. There's something about our psychology that really is drawn to and needs regular periodic renewal. And if it just keeps going on and on and on without interruption, something within our spirit starts to fade. And so these times of the year, times when we experience a turning of the calendar, the start of something new and fresh, hope rising, a a desire, a resolve to be different, to experience life differently, to come at life from a different point of view and on different terms, that's really important for us. And I'm grateful that we're able to do that together as a church family this morning. Another happy coincidence is that I'm wrapping up a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, and the last message happened to fall on today. And so that's another happy coincidence, and you'll see that it works out beautifully for what we want to do today as a church. <clears throat> Excuse me. Title the message is A Good Foundation. And the text we're going to draw from is Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. I'll read them for you. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You know, Jesus had just finished preaching the bulk of this beautiful sermon where he painted a picture of what God's plan for humanity looked like. What the world would look like, what the human societies would look like if God ruled as king and people took his rule seriously. That instead of following our nature or our hearts, we actually acknowledge the authority of God to be king over us and arrange our whole lives without compromise to align with him and his standards, to follow him Without negotiation, without exception, this is what human society would look like if that were the case. And he calls that picture the kingdom of heaven. A situation in which Jesus rules truly as king, and then he shows us what the world would look like if that were actually the case. Now, you were given, I hope, a handout And what I try to do in that handout, if you want to just pull that out, is 
I try to summarize, like it's like a highlight reel of this whole sermon on the mount. And rather than tediously going through a summary of each message that was given, I try to bring together related themes so that what you have here are some of the big ideas and beautiful pieces of the picture which Jesus wove together. And you can, you can maybe head them under this rubric. If, imagine if God's people actually lived this way. Imagine what it would feel like to live in a world or be a part of a church in which every one of us who are saved by Jesus acknowledged him as king and lived this way. Not in theory, not with our best effort, but actually did all in our power to live this way. Imagine if we were brokenhearted over the mess the world is in and with a sober and humble self-awareness, we realize the mess around us is as much because of the darkness and sin in us as it is the darkness and sin in other people. That we realize this mess is our making as well as the world out there. Imagine if we responded to those who offended us, not with revenge, but with a desire to forgive and to work for reconciliation. Instead of looking down our noses at those who offend us in judgment. I love what one commentator wrote, that peacemaking is not peaceful work. If you really want to work for peace, it's going to tear your life apart at some level. Imagine if we responded to the misery and pain and helplessness of others with kindness and generosity, even if their pain is self-inflicted and well-deserved. How's that for a picture? I mean, it's easy for the helpless victims of a hurricane or something. We say, oh dear, that's terrible. We'll hold a candlelight vigil. But what about those whose pain is their own making? Who are lying in the bed they have made and it's a terrible place to be. How do we respond to those who are broken and helpless in that way? Imagine if this is the way God's people responded. Imagine if we fought against the sexual sin that is tearing our world apart, destroying lives, and instead we learn to love others and value them, confer to others dignity as human beings, to learn how to confess our sins to one another in open and trusting community. And if we're struggling to be willing to live under limitations and constraints and in accountability to other people. Imagine if we lived among a people who are somehow free of the scourge of sexual sin, which is devastating our world. Imagine if God's people worked diligently against the corruption and decay that is everywhere in our society. And what if in the midst of changing the world... We reflected the light of Jesus. We pointed people to him, not because we just talk about him, but because we spend so much time in his presence that his light reflects off of us the same way that Moses reflected the light of God after spending that time on the mountain. Imagine if God's people took our promises and commitments seriously. Unerringly telling the truth, keeping our word so that people would learn to trust one another again. To believe the words that come out of the mouths of other people because we have experienced people who keep their word relentlessly. Imagine if we, as God's people, hungered for God even more than we hunger for food. And as an American, that is saying something. Because, my God, we love our food. But imagine if we hungered for God even more than we hunger for food. And we sought him with such an undivided heart that when we did our acts of kindness towards others, it wouldn't be a performance, it would be a real deal. Something genuine that came out of our hearts. Imagine if God's people had a healthy relationship with money so that it did not rule over us or seduce us away from Jesus Christ who is meant to be our true master and our real king. So far, it's a pretty compelling picture, I hope. Imagine if God's people could live free of worry and could pray with confidence because we are convinced deep down in our hearts as an act of faith 
that God is for us and he is with us and he loves us. Not because we believe in positive outcomes, but because we believe that the God we pray to actually loves us and is with us and is for us. And so because of that, we live free of worry and we pray with great confidence. And imagine if God's people lived by the golden rule and we treated other people with the same grace and dignity with which we ourselves would like to be treated. Can you imagine if all of these things were true of God's people, whether our lives are going well or not, whether it was easy to live this way or not, whether others around us were helping us and setting a good example or not? Can you imagine if even a handful of us would commit wholeheartedly to live this way because we follow Jesus? Imagine the impact we'd have on our own lives, on our families, our neighborhoods and workplaces, our church, and even our society. And so Jesus paints this compelling picture of what the world should be like, could be like, if he ruled instead of the darkness. And if his people really took that seriously and approached him with devotion and the deepest commitment. Now, as he's wrapping up the sermon, like any good preacher, we do this as preachers because Jesus taught us this. He calls for a response. He doesn't just say, isn't that a a swale picture? Let us pray. He doesn't just tease us with this picture of everything the world is not, but we wish it were. He shows us a picture and says, that is not a pipe dream. That kingdom is real. It exists and it can grow and rise in this world, but not cheaply and not without cost. That picture is real, but to enter it, to be a part of it, to build it, you have to make a choice today. That's what he does at the end of the sermon. And he begins with a fork in the road and he says, there is this fork in the road and one of these roads leads to that kingdom and the other one does not. It's a binary choice. You can't have both. So what's it going to be? And he calls his hearers to make a decision that day. I believe he's calling us, having seen this picture and wishing the world were like that. And I know that's not just Jesus and his hearers wishing that. We all wish the world were more like what is described in that handout. Because the opposite of that handout is what has caused all the scars in our own lives. Isn't that true? And he says to them and he says to us, now make a choice. And it can't be a casual or uncostly choice. It is an all-in choice. When you pick this one road, you unpick the other one completely. You are on one track or the other, and you must make that choice. And you must make it as you hear this word. It's interesting that Jesus says... He draws a distinction between hearing and doing. He says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. I'm sorry, that's not the verse I want to show you. It's verse 24 of our text. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Did you catch that? What that suggests to us is it's possible to hear the word and not put it into practice. It's possible to listen to a sermon, enjoy it, agree with it, even be stirred in your heart by it, and have no practical response whatsoever. And what Jesus says is, if that is the way you handle God's word when it is given to you, that's the wrong way to do it. Because true wisdom, when we're given God's word, is not just to hear it, but then to turn around and put that very word into practice. Jesus' younger brother, his name was James. How cool would that have been to grow with Jesus as your big brother? I feel sorry for Steve because he had to grow up with me as a big brother. But if Jesus were your big brother, think about the way it would shape your heart. And I think James, more than most, really got to know the heart of his brother who would become the savior of the world. 
And what James says is, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. James is describing something we could call hearer mode. It's coming to God's church and being ready to listen, but not coming with the same equal commitment to respond in obedience. It's saying, let's see what he's got today. Let's see if I agree with it. Let's see if it compels me. Let's see if it's good. Let's see if it keeps me awake. And that's all okay. We should come ready to hear. But what he says is, that's hearer mode if that's where it ends for us. That was not bad. I, I agree with that. I was even blessed by it. And what Jesus says is, hearer mode is self-deception. James tells us that if that's where God's word stops its work in our lives, is at the hearing of it. If it stops at our ears and doesn't work its way down into the depths of our hearts and minds and out into our hands and feet, we have fooled ourselves. We have drawn no benefit from hearing that word. In fact, it stacks up on our shoulders as a burden upon us because when God gives us his word, his intent is not simply to be heard and understood. But there's always in the heart of God a demand to be followed as he gives his word. And not because he's on a power trip, but because he knows that when we follow our own hearts, we always get lost. But when we follow him, he can lead us to the place that is described on your handout. When we follow our own flesh and our own instincts, our own hearts, we end up with a world the exact opposite of what's on that paper. We end up with all of this, this world. That's what we end up with. But when we follow him, he leads us to this kingdom. That looks very different because he rules over the human heart. The Apostle John adds another element to this picture. Look what it says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. I want you to let these words wash over you. Listen to what it says. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Those are powerful, potent words. And I don't want us to just move on quickly from this text because he's saying something that we have to hear. That just hearing God's word and agreeing with it and moving on with our lives is self-deception. But what is more, the proof that we truly know God or believe him or love him is not found in our agreement with him, but in our obedience of him. Obedience is not a word we welcome today. In fact, it seems to scare some people away, but it's a necessary word because it's a word that speaks to who God is to us. And if we only follow God because he makes a lot of sense, if we only follow God because he agrees with our own instincts, then we're truly in the end only following ourselves. What happens the first time God says a thing which sits very uneasily with your own heart? What happens the first time the Spirit of God says to us, do this, and everything in your being says, no way. That's crazy. That person just wronged me at a depth you cannot imagine. I cannot free them. I cannot release them. I cannot forgive. What happens the first time that what God says is not easy to do? In the end, we, f- we demonstrate our faith in God, not by our agreement with him, but by our followership of him. That is how we know in our heart of hearts that God is, in fact, king over our lives. Another way of saying it is, our faith is proven by what we do and do not do. Now, be careful not to hear that as we are saved by our works. It's not that at all. We're saved by faith, 
But our faith is demonstrated not by our words and our feelings alone, but by what we do and do not do. To help us understand and maybe accept this a little bit, think about the analogy of love. See, faith, like love, it's an easy thing to claim. It's very, it just rolls right off the tongue. I love you. I love you. Some of us are so habitually in, 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 the, in the habit of saying that, it just rolls off. But think about this. Some of the greatest pain we've endured has been at the hands of people who openly claim to love us. People who said they loved us, people who were supposed to love us, but those claims were proven false by what they did and did not do towards us. Isn't that true? That person who promised you faithfulness and joy and passion till death do us part on your wedding day, they still say every Valentine's Day, I love you. And those words mean something. But it is not words and claims we crave. It is not words and claims we most hunger for. What affects us most deeply is not the claim to love, but the practice of it, which then proves the claim to be true. We have to be careful not to believe that we're saved by our works. We are saved by faith, but a faith that does not translate to works is a faith that is is not real. And James would say later, it cannot save you. Look at that handout again and think how easy it would be in case after case to do the exact opposite of each of those things. How much easier it is to look at the person who disregards every warning and every piece of advice and ends up in the gutter again and again. You're like, seriously, you're more stubborn than a mule. It's about time you learned the lesson the hard way. You deserve this. It's like you're committed to your own misery. Well, have a full helping and have some seconds while you're at it. Wouldn't it be so much easier to look down our noses at a person in that situation? Imagine a terrible betrayal. It offends you deeply. It wounds your pride. It feels like a stab in the back. Wouldn't it be so much easier to go, oh, yeah? You want to throw that? I got one for you, too. You want to do this to me? Well, how about this? Think how much more natural, how easy it is to live exactly the opposite of the kingdom of God. It is not our obedience per se that is the rock-solid foundation, but it is that we obey because we are convinced that Jesus is the one we trust and follow. Not because it's easy, not because it feels good, not because it makes sense all the time, but because Jesus is our king. And the things he leads us to do will ultimately pay off. It will produce a better life and a better world, and it will honor him and it will honor us. And even though in the moment it is immensely difficult and hard to see, we choose to obey Because the bedrock foundation is not the obedience itself, but the deep trust and commitment we have towards Jesus that drives that obedience. Do you see? Foundations are really important. That's what this whole part of the sermon is about. Foundations. They're very important, but they get very little attention, don't they? Raise your hand if you bought a house in the last five years. Okay, so a lot of us have, are, are still somewhat familiar with the whole process of house shopping. How many of you, the first thing you're looking at when you see a house is that foundation? I need to know. Before I even look at the, the decor or the, the square footage or any of it, I need to look at the foundation. Anybody start there? We have no Bob Vila's in our midst. Where do we start? Ooh, that's pretty. Mm. Oh, honey, this could be your study. And over here, the kids could set up their little Nintendo. And we're walking around imagining because we're looking at everything above ground. All that is visible to the eye. That's what gets all of our attention. It's human nature. Why think about what's not visible? We always look at what's front and center in plain view. And so we look at the house. 
all the things that sit above the foundation and we obsess over them. And after we're convinced that we love what sits above the ground, then we have an inspector come in and go, all right, we're ready to go. The bank says we got the money. Let's get an inspector. And think about how backwards that really is because what will you do if the inspector goes, guys, this foundation, it's like old crusty bread. It's going to collapse on you. You can't get this up. We love the neighborhood and we love the schools and we love that little nook in the back. And oh my gosh, I've fallen in love with this house. I've got to have it. But the foundation, we can't see it anyway. Forget all that. Look at it. It's like a 50-year-old house. It looks, it's been standing all this time. Surely it's going to be okay. Foundations are so important, but that's not where we put our attention, is it? It's natural to focus on only what we can see. That's because foundations are invisible. When we look at other people, what we see is only the house that represents their life. We have very little real understanding of the true foundation upon which another person's life has been built. That's the way it works. So sometimes it's discouraging because you look around and you say, my gosh, everyone else at this church has such a solid life. They look so put together. Everything, all their ducks are in a row. If our lives are symbolized by a house, their house looks awesome. It's sturdy and beautiful. My house looks like a refrigerator box leaned up against the highway embankment. I I don't get it. Because when we look at each other, we don't think about foundations. We only see the house built above the ground that is visible to the naked eye. Foundations matter, but they're very often overlooked. But why do foundations matter? They matter because the good weather doesn't always hold. Do you remember how just a couple weeks ago, some of us were wearing shorts outside? Do you remember that? We're like, can you believe it's December? (laughs) Walking around in shorts, just amazed at how warm it was. And now look at what it feels like today. My gas mileage on my car plummeted because the car's like, no, I don't want to go. I'm like, we got to go. I really don't. And it's gotten me back by drinking twice the amount of gas it should. The good weather never really lasts forever, does it? That's the nature of it. Jesus said very ominously, I've told you everything I've said to you. Because you need to know that in this life, there will be trouble. Now, I want you to have peace, but I won't hide from you the reality, the harsh truth, that if you're alive in this messed up world, trouble will find you. If you're a non-Christian, trouble will find you. If you're a nominal Christian, trouble will find you. If you're a devout Christian, trouble will find you. There is no fail-safe way to dodge trouble if you're a human being and you're paying attention. Maybe the only way to dodge trouble is to be in a coma, and that's trouble, isn't it? And because the storms of life come, it is not just what lies above the ground in plain view that matters, but it's the foundation upon which that house sits that matters very much. In May of 2010, this happened. Doesn't that look photoshopped? I had to search far and wide, and the only way I knew this was not a hoax is it was in Time magazine. And at some point, you got to believe what's on the Internet. I thought for sure some dude with Photoshop was playing a trick on us. Look at that perfectly circular hole that goes straight down to hell that just opened up, (laughs) bam, in the middle of a neighborhood in Guatemala City. Here's what happened. Tropical storm Agatha blew through the place, and it caused all kinds of water issues. Areas got flooded, and the water sank into the ground and started flooding underground. And water does not like to sit still. It wants to find places to roam, and it roamed all over the parts of the city no one could see. The problem with this section in particular, that circular part of the city, is that it was built on a very gravelly, loose foundation layer it was called, i got to make sure I get this right, pumice fill. I don't know if you've ever seen pumice stone, but it's very porous. It's the Swiss cheese 
the brittle Swiss cheese of the rock world. And because it was so brittle, everything, and I don't know if you can see this, but look, this little corner right here, there's a section of that wall and that property that's just hanging over. And what does that tell you when you look at that? The issue was not what was built on the surface. What was built on the surface is pretty strong. It's got to be if when the ground falls off under a corner, but it's still hanging over like that. The issue that Jesus identifies is not the house itself, but only the foundation upon which the house rests. So Jesus says, The wise person hears my word, and because he believes I am who I say I am, and because he believes that I tell the truth, he aligns his life by this. He puts into practice all that I've said, even when it's difficult, even when it makes no sense, because he takes me at my word. That's why Jesus said, but everyone who hears these words, who's of mine? They're not just true words, they're his words. He is personally sealing their validity and authority, pinning it to himself. So that when you disregard his words, ultimately you're disregarding him. And when you practice his words, you are ultimately acknowledging him. The foolish person, in contrast, hears the words, perhaps is even in agreement with them, is moved by them, but that's where the process ends. It's like a misshapen electrical circuit where the current dies in the wrong place and doesn't finish its work. So this foolish builder, really in fair weather, it doesn't matter what foundation you're on. Two houses built on radically different foundations can look exactly the same. It's not like You know, the person who built the house on the rock, he has real diamonds, and the person who built his house on the sand has cubic zirconium. It's not like one is fake and one is real. One is kind of an illusion. The other one is actually sturdy. Both houses may be very, very sturdy, very beautiful. If you put all of your focus on what is above the ground, you can build a pretty solid life. And from our estimation by what we can see, It's not an illusion. Some other people's lives are incredibly solid. They're physically healthy and fit. They're financially stable, professionally secure, socially well-connected, romantically satisfied. Their children honor and obey them, do well in school, and on and on. Even their pet doesn't pee on their carpet. Everything is just so... You know people like that? Don't point or anything, but all of us know at least one person. You're like, you don't even know what struggle is. Shut up. Your worst day is a piece of lint on your sweater. So don't talk to me about struggle and suffering. Because some people have put all their focus on building the perfect life. The perfect car, the perfect house, the perfect career, the perfect family. And because they put so much effort and investment into it, from the outside, it's very impressive. The fault does not lie in the house they've built. The trouble comes when the fair weather ends and the storms hit. And suddenly the house is no longer the focus. It's the foundation everyone's wondering about. You notice how when you have $10,000 in tax refund to blow on something and you decide, let's put it in our house, everyone does what? A remodel. They reconfigure and redesign everything above the surface. We put it into paint and furniture and decor and landscaping. We want curb appeal. We want the room to look nice. We want the layout to function well. But how many people go, we have 10,000 bucks. I don't know if it's a problem, but let's reinforce our concrete foundation. Let's just make sure that in the next storm, we're going to be great. Let's redo the roof. It looks kind of old. It hasn't leaked yet, but by God, we're not going to let it ever leak. That's so unsexy, isn't it? It's such a deflating way to use your windfall. 10,000 bucks, let's get a whole new kitchen. Well, you can't, you can't really do a kitchen for 10 grand. Unless you live in a college apartment, but you get the idea. 
When we improve, we almost always improve what's visible. We rarely pay attention to the foundation. But when there's a torrential downpour, what does everyone do? Hey, have you checked the sump pump battery? And we, we hold the vigil. We just stand down there and look at it. Shh, don't talk to me. Because we are really worried about what's below the surface when the storms hit. We want to know, will this thing stand when the storm is over? And you need to know that this is no ordinary storm. Look at the way Jesus describes it. Because some of us have lived through this kind of storm. Some of us are living through it right now. It's beating down. It's relentless. The streams are rising. The winds are blowing. The rains are coming down. And everything's just beating against that house. Some people have lived through physical, meteorological storms that they said felt almost alive. If you hear the testimony of sailors who have been stuck at a great sea storm, they'll say it felt malevolent, evil, almost like the sea became personified and was out to kill us. If you're ever in a terrible storm, sometimes that's exactly what it feels like. It's like the universe is not cold and sterile and faceless. It takes on personality and it hates your guts. The universe isn't just like, whatever, go about your business. I'm going to kill you now. I won't let up. Does it ever feel like that in your life? Where it's like, enough already. Enough. I just got past this one thing and it's another When is it going to stop? It almost feels personal. That's the kind of storm Jesus is talking about. It's not the annoyance or the inconvenience, but the kind of storm that unravels people. The kind of storm that does not feel passive or anonymous, but it feels like suddenly some great cosmic force knows your name and is putting you to the test. And that kind of storm really cannot be dodged if you're alive. If you haven't lived through it yet, and I'm just looking in this section because you're the newest people. You're, you're the newest, shiniest human beings in the room. If you, some of you have already lived through that, haven't you? But some of you, that is yet to come. And when it comes, it will feel like everything inside of you wants to come unraveled. On that day... Financial security, physical health, social connection, professional security. None of that will seem to matter very much. All of that might hold through the storm, but something under your feet will feel like it's going to give way. If you've built on a weak foundation, the whole house, fully intact, will sink into the hole. That's why foundations matter So much. Because in the storm, the house isn't the issue, but that upon which it's built is everything. What is the foundation of the life that Jesus describes and calls us to? It is this, that the kingdom he's describing and his existence and right to rule, his saving work, all of it is the truth. There is no second narrative. There is no plan B. There is this way of the gospel. And there is a way that leads to death. There is this narrow road which leads to life. Sadly, not a lot of people will find it because it's a hard road to travel. But there's the only road that leads to life is that road. And we're invited to choose it. And we demonstrate we've chosen that road not by our verbal claims or our admiration of Jesus, but by our acknowledgement that he is, in fact, who he says he was. And that he is worthy to be followed without compromise. Even, and perhaps especially, when it's not easy to do. I think the world is amazed when people demonstrate commitment and faithfulness in the midst of terrible adversity, that's really attention-getting because it starts to feel like something real stands under their feet. And that's what he invites us to. The last Sunday of every year is Recommitment Sunday at Harvest. That's what we call it. I don't know if you were aware of that. Um, 
maybe you wouldn't have shown up if you heard that because we're not going to ask you to come up and handle snakes or get a tattoo or anything like that. But here's what we are going to do. We're going to ask you to sit quietly where you are and think about where your heart is right now. And by that, really what I'm saying is, upon what foundation are you building the life we can all see? Because I cannot cast any judgment or opinion over your life based on what I see or others see, because that's just the house we're talking about. The foundation is a work of the heart. It's a private matter between you and the Lord. And only he and you know where you stand with him. And that's what we're asking you to really reflect on today. This year, the call will be not just to recommit our hearts and minds, think differently, feel differently, but also then, because Jesus said not just to hear his word, but what? To put them into practice. In other words, practical, action-oriented obedience because he is king. And if that's the call that Jesus gives to us, then that's what we're going to recommit ourselves to. Not just a renewing or recommitment of our hearts and minds, but of our whole bodies. And I'm going to ask you to pause and just think about, we'll we'll do a little um, preschool exercise and final application here. Let's think about the different body parts class. The, The things that make us who we are. And think about how, what it would mean to us in the coming year to fully recommit these body parts in obedience to Jesus Christ because he has the right to rule over us as king. And in fact, if we obey him in these areas, think about the difference it will make in our lives, honestly. What about our eyes? I, I, somebody asked, in a, in, asked me recently, would you rather be deaf or blind? What a question. And I answered, I would rather be deaf because so much of of what I enjoy in this world comes through my eyes. I can always get closed captioning, subtitles, but I don't want to hear someone else describe the movie to me. Oh, dude, that spaceship is so awesome. (laughs) I can hear it. I realized how much wonder comes through my eyes, but I also realized how much poison comes through that same doorway. The eyes are a window into our hearts, into our souls. And open windows let in sunlight and fresh air, but they also let in flies and mosquitoes, don't they? So think about if Jesus ruled over our eyes. And this year, what I chose to look at and what I refuse to look at is an expression of my followership of Jesus. That we learn to say, I won't look at that. That is not where my eyes need to be. Jesus would not have me see this. I will turn my eyes away. But this, this book that sat on my shelf, my loved ones who are neglected day after day, these things I will look at. The world around me and its raw suffering, the isolation and misery of so many, I will look at that. I won't turn my eyes away. I won't pretend I live In Disney World, I will look at the world I actually live in, and I will ask Jesus to show me what I need to see. Imagine if Jesus ruled over our eyes. Think about how much comes in through what we hear. Right now, you're apprehending God's word by hearing. I put in slides so you visual learners won't fall completely asleep. But still... So much of what shapes us and moves us comes in through the ears. Imagine a world without music, a world without verbal communication. And imagine if Jesus ruled over what we would listen to, what we refused to listen to. It's an everyday battle in our house because we have an Apple Music family plan. I see what everyone else in the family is listening to And next to at least 80% of the music is that little box, black box with the E. Just profanity piped into the ear hole, day in, day out, 24-7. F this, F that. Like there's no effect on me, it's just the sound, the syllable. How naive to believe that. 
That's about as dumb as standing in front of an open nuclear reactor going, what radiation? I don't feel any. Those people go, I don't wear sunblock. I don't need it. (laughs) Enjoy the skin cancer. Because even though you don't think it's harming you, that stuff is getting a hold of you deep, deep, deep down. Jesus is the living word. The word. And most words in our lives are heard and spoken. So imagine if Jesus ruled over what I listen to and what I refuse to listen to. One of the things I really admire about Pastor Frank is when someone tries to spread gossip in his hearing, he has such a high bar of integrity. He'll always say, I don't want to hear that right now. I don't want to listen to that. You need to stop saying that to me and sharing it with me. Go take it with that person. That is a very, very noble and admirable trait. Our character is defined not just by what we listen to, but by what we refuse to hear. That's not good for me. It will poison my soul. I don't want that in my hearing. And so I plug my ears to that which destroys, and I open my ears to that which gives me life. Imagine if Jesus were king over our ears. Imagine if Jesus ruled over our mouth. Think about how much damage we cause by the things we say. Even if afterwards you go, sorry, I I overreacted. I didn't mean to say that. I know, but it's done. You can't unsay the word. I know that even for a second, that poison was in your heart towards me. And you voiced it, and it touched me. I know you may not have meant it with the full force with which I received it. But it's done its work. It's, it's done its damage. Imagine then if Jesus ruled over what I said and what I did not say. This is one area that God is really working on me. And I sense in 2018 this is going to be one of his biggest projects in my life. Is Dave, learn when to shut your mouth. Even when you think you're helping, just Shut up and let me speak. Stop working everything. Be quiet. Listen more. Speak less. Imagine if Jesus ruled as king over our mouths. Imagine if Jesus ruled over our hands. And what we did and what we touched What we did not do and what we did not touch was governed by the kingship and authority of Jesus over our lives. If, in fact, as your hand moved the mouse and its cursor to a certain place, and you realize this hand does not answer to me and to my heart and my flesh, but it answers to King Jesus, and he would not have me touch this or do that. Imagine if what I did and did not do, and what I touched and did not touch, was completely defined by the rule of Jesus in my life. Let me give you one last one. This may be one that applies especially to some. When, when I put this last finishing touch on the message, I felt like something jumped inside of me, like this is going to be important to somebody in our church. So if that speaks to you, maybe that's why God gave me that sense last night, but What if Jesus ruled over our feet? What if where I chose to go and where I chose not to go was completely ruled by the kingship of Jesus? So that even if he leads me to go to places I'd rather not go, I will go because he calls me there. I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. I I like it where I am. But he says, no, I'm asking you to be there right now, to go do that over there. Or what if you say to your own heart, I want to be here, or I want to go there. The voice of King Jesus says, yes, but I'm asking you to stay right here. And maybe that speaks to some of you 
right where you are? What if where you go and where you do not go was one way that you worshiped and followed Jesus, your king? What would that look like? And can you imagine if in this holistic way, everything we do relentlessly is an expression of Jesus' right and worthiness to rule over our lives? That because he saved us, he has claimed to rule over us. And if we lived our lives this way, imagine the change it would produce in our lives, our families, our workplaces, our communities. Imagine how different everything would feel if this is the way we lived, no matter what it cost or how hard it was. One of the prayers we're praying over and over for you as a church family is that Jesus would reveal himself to you in a fresh way in 2018 and produce revival in our church. But I want to close this year by giving this reminder which Jesus gave, that revival is not just a newness of feeling and a newness of hope, but it's also a recommitment to follow Jesus because he is king. He gave everything to earn that title, and he has the right to be obeyed and trusted and followed. Will you recommit your whole being to honoring Jesus Christ for who he is. I want you to just pause for a moment. I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to invite you to listen to the voice of God over your own life right now. And ask him, just show me, which one of these areas are you calling me out, Lord, and really urging me to recommit my heart, my whole being to you? In what way are you asking for more devotion and commitment from me in the coming year? And as you sense it, respond to him in your own way. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.